If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. Mark chapter 12. In fact, we're going to be turning to three passages today. So when you find Mark 12, you can put your ribbon there, you can put your finger there. If you're following along in the Bible in the P-Rack in front of you, Mark 12 is page 900. All right, so put a piece of paper there. And then I also want you to find Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is page 535 in the Bibles in the P-Rack in front of you. All right, and then I also want you to find Romans chapter 1. All right, so multitasking today, I I believe in you, you can do this. Romans chapter 1 is page 997 in the Bibles in the P-Rack in front of you. All right, so just in case you were following along, uh, if you're here today and you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take the one in the P-Rack, and that's page 900, page 535, and page 997. We're going to be addressing these three texts today. Warren Wearsby once said, If we are wrong about Jesus Christ, we are wrong about salvation. On this Resurrection Sunday, hear me, there is nothing of greater importance to our souls than being right about Jesus, and may I add, being right with God through Jesus Christ. So today we deal with a very important question. It is the all-important question. Who is Jesus? Perhaps more specifically, on what basis does Jesus's claim to divinity hold merit? Who is Jesus? You see, many people will freely acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth was a real human being. We talked about this on Good Friday at the Wharf, that secular historians would agree that a man named Jesus lived and walked the earth that he was crucified at the hands of Pontius Pilate, and that his followers claim he rose from the dead. But so many of those who would concede Jesus's human nature ultimately reject that he is the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, the word made flesh who dwelt among us. But see, Jesus himself does not leave us that option, as we will see today in Mark's gospel. We must accept him not only as David's son, but also as his Lord. There is no room for Jesus to be merely a good teacher or a good example. He claimed to be divine, and the resurrection proves it. By now, I hope you found Mark chapter 12 and verse 35. And as we'll see, this text deals with the question that Jesus poses to the scribes about the Messiah. Namely, whose son is he? And today, as we consider that question, whether it's by way of implication from Psalm 110 or by way of declaration recounted to us by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, The answer is the same. Jesus is the Son of God. Will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? Today we'll simply read from Mark 12, 35 through 37, that first text that I had you find. And I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Mark 12, beginning in verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, 
How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in honor of it. You may be seated. For those of you who are here today, perhaps for the first time, you need to know that we are walking through the gospel of Mark together as a church family. And we are at the end of a series of controversies, conversations that Jesus is having with various religious and political leaders in the temple complex in Jerusalem. On Palm Sunday, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, accompanied by the praises of the crowds shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. We studied that together at the beginning of Mark chapter 11. And when we did, we noted that Jesus was fulfilling a number of prophecies about the Messiah. He was saying something about him being the Messiah without coming out and saying, I'm the Messiah. He was fulfilling a number of messianic prophecies. On Monday of what is referred to as Holy Week, that's the day after Palm Sunday, Jesus cursed the fig tree and cleansed the temple. And then chronologically speaking, the last several messages we've been in as a church have dealt with Tuesday of Holy Week, the Tuesday before Resurrection Sunday. One might say it's Tuesday, but Sunday's coming. (laughs) So just by way of setting the scene, that's where we are still today. We're still on Tuesday, the Tuesday before Jesus died and rose again. And after his last interaction with a surprising scribe, we are told in verse 34, just before the text that we read, no one dared to ask him any questions any longer. You see, he had put away all the religious and political and legal questions that had come at him. And now he is going to ask a couple questions of his own while he's still publicly teaching in the temple. And the question he begins with would have probably left the crowds scratching their heads. He asks, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, the reason that would have left a few people scratching their heads is because that was so obviously on the nose. It was an established fact in the Old Testament that it was practically beyond dispute. The Messiah would be a descendant of David, and the scribes rightly acknowledged that. If you're following along in the bulletin or the handout that you received today, that first point simply says, the scribes said that the Messiah is the son of David. One wonders how they could have possibly missed it. Follow with me in a brief survey of Old Testament texts that promise that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. 2 Samuel 7 and verse 16. And your house, David, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Psalm 89 verses 3 through 4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to my David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. 
Isaiah prophesies in chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that would be David's father, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jeremiah 30, verse 9, they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them, written after David had died. Amos 9 and verse 11, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And one more from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, the ancient of days. So much was the Davidic line a settled matter that John actually records in his gospel that when some of the crowds heard Jesus teaching, they got really confused about him because they didn't understand where he was from. You see, they thought he was a Galilean, but they thought for sure this man was the Messiah. And they knew definitively the Messiah would come from Bethlehem because that would be of the house and lineage of David. So John 7 and 42, doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring in the town of Bethlehem where David lived? That's what the crowds were asking. They knew it. It was a settled fact. Now, newer readers of the New Testament might get a little discouraged when they open up Matthew chapter 1 to begin their New Testament reading plan. Because Matthew 1 starts working through a bunch of names and a genealogy. But now you should understand that establishing Jesus' Davidic lineage was absolutely essential to his identity as the promised Messiah who fulfills all of the passages that we've surveyed in the Old Testament and many, many more. You can now see why blind Bartimaeus's shouts in Mark chapter 10 would have filled the air with poignant expectation. Son of David, have mercy on me. Or perhaps why the religious leaders were so incensed that Jesus would receive the praise of children saying, Hosanna to the son of David. It's because everyone knew the Messiah would be David's descendant. Humanly speaking, the Messiah must have come from David's line. But that's where Jesus' question takes a turn. His question has a twist in it as well. Because when David spoke about his descendant in Psalm 110, he calls him his Lord. And he does so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So point number two, David spoke about the Messiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So before we even pause to consider the fact that David called the Messiah his Lord, think with me for a moment about the fact that Jesus ascribes Psalm 110 both to David and to the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not merely consider the Psalms to have been good Hebrew poetry or good words to live by, or great songs to sing. He says that David wrote these words by the Holy Spirit. 
So we can rightly say this morning that just like the word made flesh was both human and divine, the word itself is human and divine. Peter tells us no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here at Leonardtown Baptist Church, we affirm what the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says about Scripture in Article 1, that the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and totally trustworthy. Mark 12, 36 shows us that Jesus himself believed that the Old Testament was inspired divinely by the Holy Spirit. Totally true and totally trustworthy. So there is a weightiness to what it says, and it should be taken as the very words of God. So Jesus takes the crowd to Psalm 110, where David calls the Messiah his Lord. So if you want to flip there in your Bibles again, page 535 in the Pew Bibles, while you're pulling that back out, Psalm 110 is the Old Testament text that is quoted the most in the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1, is referred to something like 33 times by New Testament authors. They clearly understood how important this text is for understanding the person and the work of Jesus, the Messiah. Remember, if we're wrong about Jesus, we will be wrong about salvation. So as we look at Psalm 110, verse 1, hopefully you found that in your Bibles, let me share something that can help you as you read the Old Testament. You may have heard this before, but if you're new to studying your Bible, you need to know that most English translations have ways of translating the various Hebrew names for God. And so like if I flip to the beginning pages of my Bible, it's on Roman numeral number eight. I think it's Roman numeral five or seven in the Pew Bibles. It gives me a chart here of how the Christian Standard Bible is translating various Old Testament names for God. So, for example, the Hebrew name Elohim is translated God, capital G-O-D, in English. The Hebrew name, the covenant name for God, revealed in Exodus chapter 3, Yahweh, is Lord, but Lord in all capital letters. So every time you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Old Testament text in the Christian standard, that's referring to Yahweh. And then Adonai is translated Lord, capital L with lowercase O-R-D. And so on this table goes. But those three are important, particularly Lord in all caps and Lord with a lowercase o-r-d, for our text today. Now, let me give you an example of why this matters. In Psalm chapter 8 and verse 1, the psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, Lord is Yahweh, and Lord with the lowercase is Adonai, which means something like the most sovereign one, the highest sovereign 
Okay, so, O Yahweh, our sovereign king, our sovereign Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? So, typically, Yahweh, Lord with all caps, and Adonai, the Lord with the lowercase, usually refer to the same person, namely, God. Well, R.C. Sproul, as he's commenting on Psalm 110, he points it out very clearly. Look now at Psalm 110, verse 1. We find Yahweh is calling someone else Adonai. Look at the text. It says, this is the declaration of the Lord Yahweh to my Lord Adonai. Clearly, he's thinking of two different people. Who then is David's Adonai? Who is sovereign over the king of Israel? In Hebrew categories, nobody was more important, more powerful than the king. So it seems that God is speaking to someone else who carries the title for God. And so Jesus says to the scribes, what do you think about that? What do you you think the Holy Spirit's saying here? What is the Bible teaching us? The scribes were supposedly experts in the scripture, yet no one had ever carefully considered the implications of Psalm 110 for the Messiah. He would have to be not only human, but divine. Adonai was always a title for divinity. Furthermore, in Hebrew and in Roman culture, the father was always superior to the son. No one would have called their descendant, their great-great-great-grandson, their Lord, their superior. And so David, in the spirit, refers to the coming Messiah as his Lord, clearly referring to him as divine. So moving forward in our outlines today, we can rightly conclude that the implied message of Jesus' teaching about Psalm 110 was that the Messiah was not merely David's son. He must also be God's son. The only way David's son could be David's Lord would be if the Messiah was God in human flesh, which is, of course, exactly what the Bible teaches us about Jesus. And incidentally, why holding to the miraculous conception of the Holy Spirit and the virgin birth are essential teachings of the Christian faith. Thus, the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And if we pause the creed right there, we've gotten enough for our text today. Jesus is fully God, fully man, and fully dead. Crucified, died, and buried. And we would have adequately covered our text today from Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. But stopping right there felt like it would have made for a miserable Resurrection Sunday sermon. (laughs) Which is why I had you turn to Romans. Now, I know what you're thinking, Pastor Jason. How is it that you get away with randomly pick? I could see Psalm 110, 
you know, Jesus is referring to it. How do you get to go to Romans in a verse-by-verse study of Mark's gospel? Well, hang with me here for a moment. I don't think this is a stretch in the slightest way, and let me explain why. Follow my logic. Jesus is talking about the identity of the Messiah as the Son of God. That's what Mark 12, 35 through 37 is about. Now, I want to back out for a moment and look at the gospel of Mark in general and look at the very first verse of Mark's gospel. What is he writing? He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So next in your outline, if you're following along, I think it's totally reasonable and safe to say the whole gospel, according to Mark, is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark says so himself in Mark 1.1. The focus of Mark's gospel, of the gospel in general, is a person. The good news about Jesus Christ, who Mark claims is the Son of God, who Jesus is implying is the Son of God in the same text here today. He has implied it. When David, by the Holy Spirit, calls the Messiah his Lord, he's teaching that the Messiah would be the Son of God. So the thrust of Mark 12, 35 through 37. In fact, the thrust of the entire gospel of Mark is the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Why, that's why if you turn to Romans chapter 1, you will see that we are totally on theme today. I would add that the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God, was never more powerfully declared than the day Jesus rose from the dead. So look with me at the end of verse 1 of Romans chapter 1. Paul, writing to the church at Rome, begins his letter as a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart, here it is, for the gospel of God, the good news about God. And he continues in verse 2 by saying the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. So the next point in your sermon outline, the good news concerning the Son of God was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. Now, when Paul was writing this letter, he was referring to the Scriptures, which would have meant the Old Testament. In other words, the gospel was promised in the Old Testament. Again, quoting the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, Article 1 about the Bible, All scripture, yes, even that first two-thirds of your Bible, all scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. And we have seen that very clearly today, haven't we? Jesus took the crowds to the Old Testament to see a critical tenet about the messianic identity, namely that the Messiah would be human and divine. And that was promised beforehand. Paul continues, this gospel of God promised beforehand is the good news concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh. So again, by way of reinforcement today, we're just going to write it down on our outlines because repetition is a good teacher Jesus was a descendant of David 
according to the flesh. Are you seeing the tie-in now? Are you seeing the connection to Mark chapter 12? This gospel, the gospel of God, is about a human being who will be born of the line of David. Now, why is that important? Well, we've already seen in one way, it's important because Jesus fulfilled prophecies, all those prophecies about the Messiah to come from the line of David. But theologically speaking, we needed a human substitute for a human's sin. In Adam, we all die. In Christ, we are all made alive. And so the New City Catechism asks the question, why must the Redeemer be truly human? And the answer is that in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. And also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. Friends, Jesus lived the life all of us fallen human beings should have lived. We should have lived to the glory of God. Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly. And then Jesus suffered the punishment we all deserve to suffer for our sin. He suffered in the flesh. He shed his blood for our sin. And then moreover, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, tells us that since Jesus took on human flesh... He is also able to sympathize with us. He has known things like hunger, pain, rejection, humiliation, and sorrow. So we praise God that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. Now that's an interesting phrase right there, isn't it? Paul throws in, he was descended from David according to the flesh, which would be entirely unnecessary If Jesus had only one nature, he would just say, this is the good news of the gospel of the one descended from David, full stop. But he says, no, he was descended from David according to the flesh because he's not only David's son, he is also God's son. And verse four of Romans one teaches us that the resurrection, the resurrection declared that Jesus is the powerful son of God. So backing it up just a bit, again, this gospel is concerning God's son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, descended from David according to the flesh, and verse 4, appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Now, without going into all the details of why, you should know that it's possible that Paul meant The declaration itself was a powerful one, which is the way I take it when I translate it. I lean more towards the NASB on this verse, which is a more wooden translation. So in other words, how was Jesus declared to be the son of God? He was declared to be the son of God with power. He was powerfully declared to be the son of God at the resurrection. It was an appointment, a delineation, a marking off, a new and fixed yet totally firm and lasting reality. When Jesus rose from the dead, if there had ever been any doubt about it, this one act removed any remaining question of his identity. Jesus is the son of God in power. James Montgomery Boyce writes, the resurrection of Jesus establishes the doctrine of our Lord's deity. When he lived upon the earth, Jesus made claims 
that he was equal with God, that God would raise him from the dead three days after his execution by Jewish and Roman authorities. And if he was wrong in that, his claim was either the raving of a deranged man or total blasphemy. This is why when I started at the beginning, you cannot take Jesus to be just a good teacher because he claimed to be divine. But if he was right, the resurrection would be God's way of substantiating Christ's claims. Did he substantiate it? Boyce asks uh, sarcastically, I suppose. Did he rise from the dead? He retorts, yes, he did. The resurrection is God's seal on Christ's claim to divinity. You may recall the rulers asked Jesus for a sign. Show us a sign, Jesus, of the authority in which you do these things. And Jesus said, no sign will be given to this wicked and adulterous generation except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Listen, Jesus' resurrection is the ultimate vindication. It is the ultimate sign of his identity as the Son of God. David, in the spirit, calls him Lord. The same spirit according to which Jesus is appointed to be the powerful son. And in case you were wondering, Paul does not mean that Jesus only became the son of God by the resurrection. But as one commentator put it, that he, during his earthly ministry, was the son of God in weakness. The son of God in humiliation. But he became, by the resurrection, the Son of God in power. So the Redeemer is fully God and fully man. Theologically speaking, this again has great importance. The New City Catechism's next question, why must the Redeemer be truly God? The answer is that because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. We talked on Good Friday about sin against an infinite God, making us infinitely separated from him. We are humans. We are creations. When we think in different categories, sometimes we get confused. But when God in the flesh sheds his blood, that blood is perfect and effective infinitely powerful, that his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective, and also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin, wrath satisfied, as we said, and yet overcome death. One person put it a little more poetically. If Christ is not divine, then lay the book away, and every blessed faith resign that has so long been yours and mine, Through many a trying day, forget the place of bended knee and dream no more of worlds to be. If Christ is not divine, go seal again the tomb. Take down the cross, redemption sign. Quench all the stars of hope that shine and let us turn and travel on across the night that knows no dawn. What a hopeless religion it would be if Christ were not divine. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is the good news promised beforehand that one from the line of David would come and though he were truly human, 
he would be truly divine. It had to be so for the redeeming work of the Messiah to be perfect and effective. And it was proven to be so on the third day when he rose victoriously and triumphantly. Now, since we've been dipping into some theological water today, and since, once again, our understanding of Jesus is so crucial to our salvation, I want to share one more catechetical question and answer, this time from the Westminster Larger Confession. The question is, how was Christ exalted in his resurrection? We sang it. I don't know if you caught it. Verse 4, you might have been just caught up in the rapturous singing taking place around us. So are we now where Christ has led, hallelujah, following our exalted head. Made like him, like him we rise. Ours across the grave, the sky. So how is it that Christ was exalted? Why is he the exalted head? Why is he the son of God in power at his resurrection? The answer Christ was exalted in his resurrection in that not having seen corruption in death, of which it was not possible for him to be held, and having the very same body in which he suffered with the essential properties thereof. In other words, he was truly and totally human after his resurrection, but without mortality and other common infirmities belonging to this life, really united to his soul. In other words, he didn't just appear to be human. He was human and fleshed soul. He rose again from the dead on the third day by his own power, whereby he declared himself to be the son of God, to have satisfied divine justice. We spoke about that Friday. To have vanquished death and him that had the power of it and to be Lord of living and dead. All which he did as a public person. He appeared to 500, we said. He did it as the head of his church, following our exalted head, we sang. For their justification, their quickening in grace, support against enemies, and to assure them of their resurrection from the dead at the last day. Now, in case you didn't follow along with that very long answer, which is maybe why you're Baptist and not Presbyterian, let me summarize it for you. I'm teasing. That was just a joke if you're Presbyterian here. All right. The resurrection not only proved Jesus's identity, it was the beginning of the end of death itself. It exalted Jesus as Lord over all. It brought justification and vindication to all who trust in his death, burial, and resurrection. And it assures us that we will follow him in his resurrection. We will be with him and rise one day too. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our Lord. Did you catch that in Romans chapter 1, David in the spirit calls him Lord. In Romans chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I conclude with Paul's encouragement to the church at Rome. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, does he dwell in you, church? Then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead 
will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Listen, the same spirit by which David wrote Psalm 110 is the same spirit according to which Jesus was raised and is the same spirit that dwells in us who have put our faith and hope in Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of God. And it is by that same spirit that we too will rise to everlasting life. Friends, we too will walk out of the grave. Praise God. Hallelujah. Will you pray with me? Lord, if there were not souls to snatch as if from fire and bring with us, we would go right now. Lord, we are ready. Maranatha, we say every Sunday. The joy and the hope of eternity with no more pain and sorrow and suffering, all won victoriously for us by your sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection. Father, teach these truths deep down into our hearts. The importance of who the Son is matters so much. We thank you that Jesus came fully God, enjoying the fellowship of the Trinity, equal, counting in quality with God, not something to be grasped. He willingly emptied himself and became obedient and took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. Lord, we thank you for the baby in the manger at Christmas. But Lord, we also thank you that after Jesus died in the human flesh that he bore for us. And after he was buried, that he rose victoriously. And Father, as we've studied today, that was a powerful declaration. It was an appointment to a place of exaltation. Philippians continues, therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess with David's and with ours the church. Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. So now Heavenly Father I pray that there would be. All across the room a declaration in truth that Jesus is Lord. Father, that you would draw some person here that hasn't come to see Jesus as truly their Lord, that they would repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in him and all that he accomplished by dying for our sins and rising again. Thank you for Resurrection Sunday. Thank you for your word, how intricate and how beautifully it's all tied together. Of course, that would make sense because we understand that it is all divinely inspired. How can 40 plus authors have this same common theme and thread throughout? They wrote as carried along by the Spirit. And so we thank you that Psalm 110 tells us something about Jesus the Messiah and preaches the gospel to us before he even came. Father, we thank you for your word, how it's instructed our hearts today. 
May we respond as your spirit moves. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.